Chapter 15 of the Book of Buried Treasure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Buried Treasure by Ralph Delahaye Payne. Chapter 15 Sundry Pirates and Their Booty. Seven years were gone, and over, Wild Roger came again. He spoke of forays and a phrase upon the Spanish main, and he had stores of gold galore and silks and satins fine, and flasks and casks of Malavoisie and precious Gascon wine. Rich booties he had brought, he said, across the western wave. Roger was the same man still. He scorned his brother's prayers. He called his crew, away he flew, and on those foreign shores got killed in some outlandish place. They called it the eyesores. Ingoldsby Legends The popular delusion that pirates found nothing better to do with their plunder than to bury it like so many thrifty depositors in savings banks clashes with what is known of the habits and temperaments of many of the most industrious rovers under the black flag. By way of a concluding survey of the matter, let us briefly examine the careers of diverse pirates of sorts, and try to ascertain what they did with their gold, and whether it be plausible to assume that they had any of it left to bury. Of course, romance and legend are up in arms at the presumption that any well-regulated and orthodox pirate omitted the business with the pick and shovel and the chart with the significant crosses and compass bearings, but the prosaic facts of history are due to have their innings. For example, there was Jean Lafitte, who amassed great riches in the pursuit of his profession, and whose memory has inspired innumerable treasure-seeking expeditions in the Gulf of Mexico and along the coast of Central America. After ravaging the commerce of the East India Company in the waters of the Far East, he set up his headquarters on an island among the bayous and cypress swamps that desolate region below New Orleans that is known as Barataria. A deep-water pass ran to the open sea, only two leagues distant, and on the shores of the sheltered harbor of Grand Terra, Lafitte organized the activities of a large number of pirates and smugglers and formed a flourishing colony, a corporation in this way, for disposing of the merchandise filched from honest shipping. These marauders posed as privateers, and some of them had French and other commissions for sailing against the Spanish. There was a great deal of laxity in such trifles as living up to the letter of the law. At Grand Terra, Lafitte and his people sold the cargoes of their prizes by public auction, and from all parts of lower Louisiana bargain hunters flocked to Barataria to deal in this tempting traffic. The goods thus purchased were smuggled into New Orleans and other nearby ports, and Lafitte's piratical enterprises became so notorious that the government of the United States sent an expedition against him in 1814, commanded by Commodore Patterson. At Grand Terra he found a settlement so great in force and numbers as to constitute a small kingdom ruled by Lafitte. Commodore described the encounter in a letter to the Secretary of War, and said in part, At half-past eight o'clock a.m. on the 16th of June, made the island of Barataria, and discovered a number of vessels in the harbor, some of which showed the colors of Cartagena. At two o'clock, perceived the pirates forming the vessels, ten in number, including prizes, to a line of battle near the entrance of the harbor, and making every preparation to offer battle. At ten o'clock, when light and variable, formed the order of battle with six gunboats, and the seahorse tender, mounting one six-pounder and fifteen men, and a lunch mounting one twelve-pound carronade, the schooner Carolina drawing too much water to cross the bar. 
At half-past ten o'clock, perceived several smokes along the coast as signals, and at the same time a white flag hoisted on board a schooner at the fort, an American flag at the mainmast head, and a Cartagenian flag, under which the pirates cruise, at her topping lift. I replied with a white flag at my main. At eleven o'clock, discovered that the pirates had fired two of the best schooners, hauled down my white flag, and made the signal for battle, hoisting a large flag bearing the words, Pardon for Deserters. Having heard there was a number on shore from our army and navy, at a quarter past eleven o'clock, two gunboats grounded and were passed, agreeably to my previous orders, by the other four which entered the harbor, manned by my barge and the boats belonging to the grounded vessels, and proceeded in. To my great disappointment, I perceived that the pirates had abandoned their vessels and were flying in all directions. I immediately sent the launch and two barges with small boats in pursuit of them, at Meridian took possession of all their vessels in the harbor, consisting of six schooners and one felucca, cruisers and prizes of the pirates, one brig, a prize, and two armed schooners under the Cartagenian flag, both in the line of battle with the armed vessels of the pirates, and apparently with an intention to aid them in any resistance they might make against me, as their crews were at quarters, tompions out of their guns and matches lighted. Colonel Ross, with seventy-five infantry, at the same time landed and took possession of their establishment on shore, consisting of about forty houses of different sizes, badly constructed and thatched with palmetto leaves. When I perceived the enemy forming their vessels into a line of battle, felt confident from their number, and very advantageous position, and their number of men, that they would have fought me. They're not doing so, I regret, for had they, I should have been able more effectually to destroy or make prisoners of them and their leaders. The enemy had mounted on their vessels twenty pieces of cannon of different caliber, and as I have since learned, had from eight hundred to one thousand men of all nations and colors. Notwithstanding this unfriendly visit, Lafitte was a patriot after his own fashion, and during the War of 1812 his sympathies were with the American forces. In September 1814, Captain Lockyer, of a British naval vessel, anchored in the pass of Barataria, and delivered to Lafitte a packet of documents, comprising a proclamation addressed to the inhabitants of Louisiana by Colonel Edward Nichols, commander of the English forces on the coast of Florida, a letter from him to Lafitte, and another from the Honorable W. H. Percy, captain of the sloop of war, Hermes. The upshot of all this was a proposal that Lafitte enter the British naval service in command of a frigate, and if he would take his men with him, he should have $30,000, payable at Pensacola. Lafitte refused the tempting bait, and two days later sent the following letter to Governor Claiborne of the state of Louisiana. Barataria, September 4, 1814. Sir, in the firm persuasion that the choice made of you to fill the office of the first magistrate of this state was dictated by the esteem of your fellow citizens and was conferred on merit, I confidently address you on an affair on which may depend the safety of this country. I offer to restore to this state several citizens who perhaps in your eyes have lost that sacred title. I offer you them, however, such as you could wish to find them, ready to exert their utmost efforts in defense of the country. This point of Louisiana, which I occupy, is of great importance in the present crisis. I tender my services to defend it, and the only reward I ask is that a stop be put to the prescription against me and my adherents by an act of oblivion for all that has been done hitherto. I am the stray sheep wishing to return to the fold. If you are thoroughly acquainted with the nature of my offenses, I shall appear to you much less guilty, and still worthy to discharge the duties of a good citizen. I have never sailed under any flag but that of the Republic of Cartagena, 
and my vessels are perfectly regular in that respect. If I could have brought my lawful prizes into the ports of this state, I should not have employed the illicit means that have caused me to be proscribed. I decline saying more on the subject until I have the honor of your Excellency's answer, which I am persuaded can be dictated only by wisdom. Should your answer not be favorable to my desires, I declare to you that I will instantly leave the country to avoid the imputation of having cooperated towards an invasion of this point, which cannot fail to take place, and to rest secure in the acquittal of my conscience. I have the honor to be your excellencies, etc. J. Lafitte. This highly commendable document so favorably impressed Governor Claiborne that he offered Lafitte safe conduct to come to New Orleans and meet General Andrew Jackson. After a conference of this trio, the following order was issued. The governor of Louisiana, being informed that many individuals implicated in the offenses heretofore committed against the United States at Barataria, express a willingness at the present crisis to enroll themselves and march against the enemy does hereby invite them to join the standard of the United States, and is authorized to say, should their conduct in the field meet the approbation of the Major General, that the officer will unite with the Governor in a request to the President of the United States to extend to each and every individual so marching and acting a free and full pardon. At the Battle of New Orleans on January 8, 1815, Lafitte and his lieutenant, Dominique, commanded a large force of what Jackson called corsairs of barataria and defended their breastworks and served their batteries with such desperate gallantry that they nobly earned the promised pardons these were granted by president james madison on february sixth and he took occasion to say but it has since been represented that the offenders have manifested a sincere repentance that they have abandoned the prosecution of the worst cause for the support of the best and particularly that they have exhibited in the defense of new orleans unequivocal traits of courage and fidelity offenders who have refused to become the associates of the enemy in the war upon the most seductive terms of invitation and who have aided to repel his hostile invasion of the territory of the united states can no longer be considered as objects of punishment but as objects of a generous forgiveness the foregoing evidence is ample to prove that Lafitte had no occasion to bury any of his treasure. Like Kidd, along the New England coast, legend has been busy with his name and is blind to the facts of record. He later made a settlement on the island of Galveston, and his history becomes obscured. One version is that the love of the old trade was in his blood, and he fitted out a large privateer to have a farewell fling with fortune. A British sloop of war overhauled him in the Gulf of Mexico, hailed him as a pirate, an open fire the engagement was terrifically hot and jean lafitte was killed at the head of his men while resisting a boarding party take next the case of that noted pirate captain avery whose adventures were the subject of general conversation in europe he captured one of the great mongol ships laden with treasure it was reported that he had wedded a daughter of that magnificent ruler and was about to found a new monarchy that he gave commissions in his own name to the captains of his ships and the commanders of his forces, and was acknowledged by them as their prince. With sixteen stout fellows of his own kidney, he ran off with a ship in which he had sailed from England as mate, and steered for Madagascar in the year 1715. The pirate's own book tells the story of Captain Avery, his treasure, and the melancholy fate of both, and the author is, as a rule, 
such a well-informed historian of these matters that he should be allowed to set it forth in his own words which are framed in the style admirably befitting the theme near the river indus the man at the masthead espied a sail upon which they gave chase as they came nearer to her they discovered that she was a tall vessel and might turn out to be an east indiaman she however proved a better prize for when they fired at her she hoisted mongol colors and seemed to stand upon her defense avery only cannonaded at a distance when some of the men began to suspect he was not the hero they had supposed his sloops however attacked the one on the bow and another upon the quarter of the ship and so boarded her she then struck her colors she was one of the great mongols own ships and there were in her several of the greatest persons in his court among whom it was said was one of his daughters going upon a pilgrimage to mecca and they were carrying with them rich offerings to present at the shrine of mohammed it is a well-known fact that the people of the east travel with great magnificence so that these had along with them all their slaves and attendants with a large quantity of vessels of gold and silver and immense sums of money to defray their expenses by land the spoil therefore which they received from that ship was almost incalculable our adventurers made the best of their way back to madagascar intending to make that place the deposit of all their treasure to build a small fort and to keep always a few men there for its protection avery however disconcerted this plan and rendered it altogether unnecessary while steering their course he sent a boat to each of the sloops requesting that the chiefs would come on board his ship to hold a conference he suggested to them the necessity of securing the property which they had acquired and observed that the main difficulty was to get it safe on shore adding that if either the sloops should be attacked alone they would not be able to make any great resistance that for his part his ship was so strong so well manned and such a swift sailing vessel that he did not think it possible for any other ship to take or overcome her accordingly he proposed that all their treasure should be sealed up in three chests that each of the captains should have a key and that they should not be opened until all were present that the chest should be then put on board his ship and afterwards lodged in some safe place on land this proposal seemed so reasonable and so much for the common good that it was agreed to without hesitation and all the treasure was deposited in three chests and carried to avery's ship the weather being favorable they remained all three in company during that and the next day meanwhile avery tampering with his men suggested that they had now on board what was sufficient to make them all happy and what continued he should hinder us from going to some country where we are not known and living on shore all the rest of our days in plenty they soon understood his hint and all readily consented to deceive the men of the sloops and fly with all the booty this they effected during the darkness of the following night the reader may easily conjecture what were the feelings and indignation of the other two crews in the morning when they discovered that avery had made off with all their property avery and his men hastened towards america and being strangers in that country agreed to divide the booty to change their names and each separately to take up his residence and live in affluence and honor avery had been careful to conceal the greater part of the jewels and other valuable articles so that his own riches were immense arriving at boston he was almost resolved to settle there but as the greater part of his wealth consisted of diamonds he was apprehensive that he could not dispose of them at that place without being taken up as a pirate upon reflection therefore he resolved to sail for ireland and in a short time arrived in the northern part of that kingdom 
and his men dispersed into several places. Some of them obtained the pardon of King William and settled in that country. The wealth of Avery, however, now proved of small service and occasioned him great uneasiness. He could not offer his diamonds for sale in that country without being suspected. Considering, therefore, what was best to be done, he thought there might be some person in Bristol he could venture to trust. Upon this he resolved, and going to Devonshire, sent one of his friends to meet him at a town called Bideford. When he had unbosomed himself to him and other pretended friends, they agreed that the safest plan was to put his effects in the hands of some wealthy merchants. No inquiry would be made how they came by them. One of these friends told him he was acquainted with some who were very fit for the purpose, and if he would allow them a handsome commission, they would do the business faithfully. Avery liked the proposal, particularly as he could think of no other way of managing this matter, since he could not appear to act for himself. Accordingly, merchants paid Avery a visit at Bideford, where after strong protestations of honor and integrity, he delivered them his effects, consisting of diamonds and some vessels of gold. After giving him a little money for his present subsistence, they departed. He changed his name and lived quietly at Bideford, so that no notice was taken of him. In a short time, his money was all spent, and he heard nothing from his merchants, though he wrote to them repeatedly. At last they sent him a small supply, but it was not sufficient to pay his debts. In short, the remittances they sent him were so trifling that he could with difficulty exist. He therefore determined to go privately to Bristol and have an interview with the merchants himself where instead of money he met with a mortifying repulse. For when he desired them to come to an account with him, they silenced him by threatening to disclose his character, the merchants thus proving themselves as good pirates on land as he was on sea. Whether he was frightened by these menaces, or had seen some other person who recognized him, is not known. However, he went immediately to Ireland, and from thence solicited his merchants very strongly for a supply, but to no purpose, so that he was reduced to beggary. In this extremity he was determined to return and cast himself upon the mercy of these honest Bristol merchants, let the consequences be what it would. He went on board a trading vessel and worked his passage over to Plymouth, from whence he traveled on foot to Bideford. He had been there but a few days when he fell sick and died, not being worth so much as would buy a coffin. That very atrocious pirate, Charles Gibbs, squandered most of his treasure, but it may be some consolation to know that twenty thousand dollars of it in silver coin was buried on the beach of Long Island a few miles from Southampton, as attested by the records of the United States Court of the Southern District, New York. Captain Gibbs was a thoroughly bad egg from first to last, and quite modern it is interesting to note, for he was hanged as recently as 1831. He was born in Rhode Island, raised on a farm, and ran away to sea in the Navy. It is to his credit that he is said to have served on board the Chesapeake in her famous battle with the Shannon. But after his release from Dartmoor as a British prisoner of war, he fell from grace and opened a groggery in Ann Street called the Tin Pot, a place full of abandoned women and dissolute fellows. He drank up all the profits, so went to sea again and found a berth in a South American privateer. Leading a mutiny, he gained the ship and made a pirate of her, frequenting Havana and plundering merchant vessels along the Cuban coast. He slaughtered their crews in cold blood and earned an infamous reputation for cruelty. In his confession written while he was under sentence of death in New York, he stated, at some time in the course of the year 1819, he left Havana and came to the United States, bringing with him about $30,000 in gold. He passed several weeks in the city of New York and then went to Boston, whence he took passage for Liverpool in the ship Emerald. 
before he sailed however he had squandered a large amount of his money by dissipation and gambling he remained in liverpool a few months and then returned to boston his residence in liverpool at that time is satisfactorily ascertained from another source beside his own confession a female now in new york was well acquainted with him there where she says he lived like a gentleman apparently with abundant means of support in speaking of his acquaintance with this female he says i fell in with a woman who i thought was all virtue but she deceived me and i am sorry to say that a heart that never felt abashed at scenes of carnage and blood was made a child of for a time by her and they gave way to dissipation to drown the torment how often when the fumes of liquor have subsided have i thought of my good and affectionate parents and of their godlike advice my friends advised me to behave myself like a man and promised me their assistance but the demon still haunted me and i spurned their advice after the adventure with the deceitful female gibbs was not as successful as formerly in his profession of piracy and appears to have lost his grip for several years he knocked about the seven seas in one sort of shady escapade or another but he flung away whatever gold he harvested and was driven to commit the sordid crime which brought him to the gallows in november of eighteen thirty he shipped as a seaman in the brig vineyard captain william thornby from new orleans to philadelphia with a cargo of cotton and molasses and fifty four thousand dollars in specie learning of the money on board gibbs cooked up a conspiracy to kill the captain and the mate and persuaded thomas wensley the steward to help him put them out of the way according to the testimony others of the crew were implicated but the court convicted only these two the sworn statement of seaman robert dawes is as red-handed a treasure story as could be imagined when about five days out i was told that there was money on board charles gibbs e church and the steward then determined to take possession of the brig they asked james halbert another member of the crew to join them he said no as he did not believe there was money in the vessel they concluded to kill the captain and mate and if talbot and john brownrigg would not join them to kill them also the next night they talked of doing it and got their clubs ready i dared not say a word as they declared they would kill me if i did as they did not agree about killing talbot and brownrigg their two shipmates it was put off they next concluded to kill the captain and mate on the night of november twenty second but did not get ready but on the night of the twenty third between twelve and one o'clock when i was at the helm the steward came up with a light and a knife in his hand he dropped the light and seizing the pump brake struck the captain with it over the head or back of the neck the captain was sent forward by the blow and hallowed oh and murder once he was then seized by gibbs and the cook one by the head and the other by the heels and thrown overboard atwell and church stood at the companionway to strike down the mate when he should come up as he came up and inquired what was the matter they struck him over the head he ran back into the cabin and charles gibbs followed him down but as it was dark he could not find him gibbs then came on deck for the light with which he returned below i left the helm to see what was going on in the cabin gibbs found the mate and seized him while atwell and church came down and struck him with a pump brake and club the mate was then dragged upon deck they called for me to help them and i came up the mate seized my hand and gave me a death grip three of them hove him overboard but which three i do not know the mate was not dead when cast overboard but called after us twice while in the water i was so frightened that i hardly knew what to do then they asked me to call talbot who was in the forecastle saying his prayers 
He came up and said it would be his turn next, but they gave him some grog and told him not to be afraid, as they would not hurt him. If he was true to them, he should fare as well as they did. One of those who had been engaged in the bloody deed got drunk, and another became crazy. After killing the captain and mate, they set about overhauling the vessel, and got up one keg of Mexican dollars. Then they divided the captain's clothes and money, about forty dollars in a gold watch. Talbot, Brownrig, and I, who were all innocent men, were obliged to do as we were commanded. I was sent to the helm and ordered to steer for Long Island. On the day following, they divided several kegs of the specie, amounting to five thousand dollars each, and made bags and sewed the money up. After this division, they divided the rest of the money without counting it. On Sunday, when about fifteen miles south-southeast of Southampton Light, they got the boats out and put half the money in each, and then they scuttled the vessel and set fire to it in the cabin and took to the boats. Gibbs, after the murder, took charge of the vessel as captain. From the papers on board, we learned that the money belonged to Stephen Gerard. With the boats, we made land about daylight. I was in a longboat with three others. The rest with Atwell were in a jolly boat. On coming to the bar, the boat stuck, and we threw overboard a great deal of money, and all about $5,000. The jolly boat foundered. We saw it fill and heard them cry out, saw them clinging to the masts. We went ashore on Barren Island and buried the money in the sand, but very lightly. Soon after, we met with a gunner, whom we requested to conduct us where we could get some refreshments. They were by him conducted to Johnson's, the only man living on the island, where we stayed all night. I went to bed about ten o'clock. Jack Brownrigg sat up with Johnson, and in the morning told me he had told Johnson all about the murders. Johnson went in the morning with the steward for the clothes, which were left on top of the place where they buried the money, but I don't believe they took away the money. Here was genuine buried treasure, but the circumstances were such as to make the once terrible Captain Charles Gibbs cut a wretched figure to the ignominious crime of killing the captain and mate of a little trading brig had descended this rebooter of renown who had numbered his prizes by the score and boasted of slaying their crews wholesale as for the specie looted from the brig vineyard half the amount was lost in the surf when the jolly boat foundered and the remainder buried where doubtless that hospitable resident johnson was able to find most of it silver dollars were too heavy to be carried away in bulk by stranded pirates fleeing the law these rascals got no good of their plunder. Glance at the sin-stained roster of famous pirates. Edward Lowe, Captain England, Captain Thomas White, Benito de Soto, Captain Roberts, Captain John Rackham, Captain Thomas Two, and most of the bloody crew. And it will be found that either they wasted their treasure in debaucheries or were hanged, shot, or drowned with empty pockets. Of them all, Blackbeard fills the eye most struttingly as the proper pirate to have buried treasure. He was immensely theatrical, fond of playing the part right up to the hilt. We may rest assured that unless his sudden taking off prevented, he was at pains to bury at least one sea chest full of treasure in order to live up to the best traditions of his calling. He was prosperous, and unlike most of his lesser brethren, suffered no low tides of fortune. By rights, he should be a far more famous character than Captain William Kidd, whose commonplace career was so singularly devoid of purple patches. Blackbeard was a pirate right out of a book, as the saying is. How this Captain Edward Teach swaggered through the streets of Charleston and terrorized the Carolinas and Bermuda is an old story, as is also the thrilling narrative of his capture, after a desperate battle, by brave Lieutenant Maynard who hung the pirate's head from his bowsprit and sailed home in triumph. 
there are touches here and there however the authentic biography of blackbeard which seemed to belong in the discussion of buried treasure for he was so very much the kind of flamboyant rogue the legend paints as infernally busy with pick and shovel on dark and lonely beaches blackbeard is the hero of such extremely diverting tales as these which sundry writers have not scrupled to appropriate either for purposes of fiction or blushingly to fit them to poor captain kidd as chroniclers of fact in the commonwealth of pirates he who goes the greatest length of wickedness is looked upon with a kind of envy amongst them as a person of a most extraordinary gallantry he is therefore entitled to be distinguished by some post and if such a one has but courage he must certainly be a great man the hero of whom we are writing was thoroughly accomplished in this way and some of his frolics of wickedness were as extravagant as if he aimed at making his men believe he was a devil incarnate being one day at sea and a little flushed with drink come said he let us make a hell of our own and try how long we can bear it accordingly he with two or three others went down into the hold and closing up all the hatches filled several pots full of brimstone and other combustible matter they then set it on fire and so continued till they were almost suffocated when some of the men cried out for air at length he opened the hatches not a little pleased that he had held out the longest one night blackbeard drinking in his cabin with israel hands and the pilot and another man without any pretence took a small pair of pistols cocked them under the table which being perceived by the man he went on deck leaving the captain hands and the pilot together when his pistols were prepared he extinguished the candle crossed his arms and fired at the company under the table the one pistol did no execution but the other wounded hands in the knee interrogated concerning the meaning of this he answered with an imprecation that if he did not now and then kill one of them they would forget who he was in blackbeard's journal which was taken there were several memoranda of the following nature all written with his own hand such a day rum all out our company somewhat sober a damn confusion amongst us rogues a-plotting great talk of separation so i looked sharp for a prize such a day took one with a great deal of liquor on board so kept the company hot damned hot and all things went well again blackbeard derived his name from his long black beard which like a frightful meteor covered his old face and terrified all america more than any comet that has ever appeared he was accustomed to twist it with ribbon in small quantities turn them about his ears in time of action he wore a sling over his shoulder with three braces of pistols he struck lighted matches under his hat which appearing on both sides of his face and eyes naturally fierce and wild made him such a figure that the human imagination cannot form a conception of a fury more terrible and alarming in the best account of his melodramatic exit from the life which he had adorned with so much distinction there is a reference to buried treasure that must be set down as a classic of its kind upon the seventeenth of november seventeen seventeen Lieutenant Maynard left James River in quest of Blackbeard, and on the evening of the 21st came in sight of the pirate. This expedition was fitted out with all possible secrecy, no boat being permitted to pass that might convey any intelligence, while care was taken to discover where the pirates were lurking. The hardened and infuriated pirate, having been often deceived by false intelligence, was the less attentive, nor was he convinced of his danger until he saw the sloops sent to apprehend him. Though he had then only twenty men on board, he prepared to give battle, Lieutenant Maynard arrived with his sloops in the evening and anchored, as he could not venture under cloud of night to go into the place where Blackbeard lay. 
The latter spent the night in drinking with the master of a trading vessel, with the same indifference as if no danger had been near. Nay, such was the desperate wickedness of this villain, that, it is reported, during the carousals of that night, one of his men asked him, in case anything should happen to him during the engagement with the two sloops which were waiting to attack him in the morning, whether his wife knew where he had buried his money. To this he impiously replied, that nobody but himself and the devil knew where it was, and the longest liver should take it all. In the morning, Maynard weighed, and sent his boat to take soundings, which, coming near the pirate, received her fire. Maynard then hoisted royal colors, and directly toward Blackbeard with every sail and oar. In a little while the pirate ran aground, and so did the king's vessels. Maynard lightened his vessel over the ballast and water, and made towards Blackbeard. Upon this the pirate hailed in his own rude style, Damn you for villains, who are you, and from whence come you? The lieutenant answered, you may see from our colors we are no pirates. Blackbeard bade him send his boat on board, that he might see who he was. But Maynard replied, I cannot spare my boat, but I will come on board of you as soon as I can with my sloop. Upon this Blackbeard took a glass of liquor and drank to him, saying, I'll give no quarter nor take any from you. Maynard replied, he expected no quarter from him, nor should he take any. It is to be presumed that the devil fell heir to Blackbeard's treasure, inasmuch as Lieutenant Maynard and his men fairly cut the pirate and his crew to pieces. Turn we now from such marauders as this to that greater generation of buccaneers, so called, who harried the Spanish treasure fleets in towns in the West Indies and on the coasts of the Isthmus in South and Central America. During the period when Port Royal, Jamaica, was the headquarters and recruiting station for these picturesque cutthroats, and Sir Henry Morgan was their bright particular star, there is the testimony of an eyewitness and participant to show that the blood-stained gold seldom tarried long enough with its owners to permit of burying it, and that they bothered their wicked heads very little about safeguarding the future. Captain Bartholomew Roberts, that tall black man nearly forty years old whose favorite toast was damnation to him whoever lives to wear a halter was snuffed out in an action with a king's ship and the manner of his life and melodramatic quality of his death suggests that he be mentioned herein as worthy of a place beside blackbeard himself roberts has been overlooked by buried treasure legend and this is odd for he was a figure to inspire such tales his flamboyant career opened in 1719 and was successful until the British man-of-war Swallow overhauled him on the African coast. His biographer, Captain Charles Johnson, writing while the episode was less than a decade old and when the facts were readily obtainable, left us this fine picture of the fight. Roberts himself met a gallant figure at the time of the engagement, being dressed in a rich crimson damask waistcoat and breeches, red feather in his hat, a gold chain round his neck, with a diamond cross hanging to it, sword in his hand, and two pair of pistols hanging at the end of a silk sling flung over his shoulder, according to the fashion of the pirates. He is said to have given his orders with boldness and spirit, coming, according to what he had purposed, close to the man-of-war received her fire and then hoisted his black flag and returned it shooting away from her with all the sail he could pack but keeping his tacks down either by the wind shifting or ill steerage or both he was taken aback with his sails and the swallow came a second time very nigh to him he had now perhaps finished the fight very desperately if death who took a swift passage in a grape shot had not interposed and struck him directly on the throat 
He settled himself on the tackles of a gun, which one Stevenson from the helm, observing, ran to his assistance, and not perceiving him wounded, swore at him and bid him stand up like a man. But when he found his mistake, and that Captain Roberts was certainly dead, he gushed into tears and wished the next shot might be his lot. They presently threw him overboard with his arms and ornaments on, according to the repeated request he had made in his life. There was no treasure for the stout-hearted scoundrels who were captured by the swallow. They had diced with fortune and lost. An execution dock was waiting for them. They are worth a passing acquaintance, and it gives one a certain satisfaction to learn that they were impudently merry, saying that when they viewed their nakedness that they had not one half-penny left to give old Sharon to ferry them over to the sticks, and that their thin commons they would observe that they fell away so fast that they should not have weight enough to hang them. Sutton used to be very profane, and he happening to be in the same irons with another prisoner, who was more serious than ordinary, and read and prayed often, as became his condition. This man Sutton used to swear and ask him what he proposed by so much noise and devotion. Heaven, I hope, says the other. Heaven, you fool, says Sutton. Did you ever hear of any pirate going thither? Give me hell. It's a merrier place. I'll give Roberts a salute of thirteen guns at entrance. After Morgan had sacked the rich city of Portobello, John Esquemeling wrote of the expedition. With these ships, he arrived in a few days at the island of Cuba, where he sought out a place wherein, with all quiet and repose, he might make the dividend of the spoil they had got. They found in ready money 250,000 pieces of eight, besides all other merchandises, as cloth, linen, silks, and other goods. With this rich booty they sailed again thence to their common place of rendezvous in Jamaica. Being arrived, they passed here some time in all sorts of vices and debauchery, according to their common manner of doing, spending with huge prodigality what others had gained with no small labor and toil. Such of these pirates are found who will spend two or three thousand pieces of eight in one night, not leaving themselves, for adventure, a good shirt to wear in their backs in the morning. My own master would buy, on like occasions, a whole pipe of wine, and placing it in the street, would force everyone to pass by to drink with him, threatening also to pistol them in case they would not do it. At other times he would do the same with barrels of ale or beer, and very often, with both his hands, he would throw these liquors about the street and wet the clothes of such as walked by, without regarding whether he spoiled their apparel or not, were they men or women. Among themselves and to each other, these pirates are extremely liberal and free. If any one of them has lost his goods, which often happens in their manner of life, they freely give him and make him partaker of what they have. In taverns and alehouses, they always have great credit, but in such houses at Jamaica, they ought not to run very deep in debt, seeing the inhabitants of that island easily sell one another for debt. Thus it happened to my patron, or master, to be sold for a debt of a tavern, wherein he had spent the greater part of his money. This man had, within the space of three months before, three thousand pieces of eight in ready cash, all of which he wasted in that short space of time, and became as poor as I have told you. The same free-handed and lurid manner of life prevailed on the little island of Tortuga, off the coast of Haiti, where the French and English buccaneers had a lawless kingdom of their own. In his account of the career of the infamous Lalanay, Esquimeling goes on to say, Parting therefore thence, they took their course towards the island of Española, and arrived thither in eight days, casting anchor in a port called Isla de la Vaca, or Cow Island, 
This isle is inhabited by French buccaneers, who most commonly sell the flesh they hunt to pirates and others, who now and then put in there, with intent of fiddling or trading with them. Here they unladed the whole cargo of riches which they had robbed, the usual storehouse of the pirates being commonly under the shelter of the buccaneers. Here also they made a dividend amongst them, of all their prizes and gains, according to that order and degree which belonged to every one. Having cast up the account and made exact calculation of all they had purchased, they found in ready money two hundred and three score thousand pieces of eight, whereupon this being divided, every one received to his share in money, also in pieces of silk, linen, and other commodities, the value of above hundred pieces of eight. Those who had been wounded in this expedition received their part before all the rest. I mean such recompenses as I spoke of in the first book, for the loss of their limbs which they may have sustained. Afterwards they weighed all the plate that was uncoined, reckoning after the rate of ten pieces of eight for every pound. The jewels were prized with much variety, either at too high or too low rates, being thus occasioned by their own ignorance. This being done, every one was put to his oath again, that he had not concealed anything nor subtracted from the common stock. Hence they proceeded to the dividend of which shares belonged to such as were dead amongst them, either in battle or otherwise. These shares were given to their friends to be kept entire for them, and to be delivered in due time to their nearest relatives, or whomsoever should appear to be their lawful heirs. The whole dividend being entirely finished, they set sail thence for the Isle of Tortuga. Here they arrived one month after, to the great joy of most that were upon the island, whereas to the common pirates, in three weeks, they had scarce any money left them, having spent it all in things of little value, or at play, either at cards or dice. Here also arrived, not long before them, two French ships, laden with wine and brandy and other things of this kind, whereby these liquors, at the arrival of the pirates, were sold in different cheap. This lasted not long, for soon after they were enhanced extremely, a gallon of brandy being sold for four pieces of eight. The governor of the island bought of the pirates the whole cargo ship laden with cacao, giving them for that rich commodity scarce the twentieth part of what it was worth. Thus they made shift to lose and spend the riches they had got in much less time than they were purchased by robbing. The taverns, according to the custom of pirates, got the greatest part thereof, insomuch that soon after they were constrained to seek more by the same unlawful means they had obtained the proceeding. Morgan himself buried none of his vast treasure, although legend persists in saying so, nor did he waste it in riotous living. From the looting of Panama alone he took booty to the value of two million dollars as his share, and he had no need to hide it. He was thought so well of in England that Charles the Second knighted him, and he was appointed commissary of the Admiralty. For some time he lived in England, published his Voyage to Panama in 1683, and spent his remaining years in Jamaica as an opulent and influential person in high favor with the ruling powers, and a terror to the luckless, beggared comrades who had helped him win his fortune. As governor of the island, he hanged as many as he could lay hands on, kind of ingratitude not at all inconsistent with the traits of character he had displayed as a pirate. He did not hesitate to rob his own men, according to Esquimelling, from whose narrative of the great expedition against Panama the following paragraphs are taken as indicative of the methods of this great freebooter of the Spanish main. Not long after Captain Morgan arrived at Jamaica, he found many of his chief officers and soldiers reduced to their former state of indigence through their immoderate vices and debauchery. 
Hence, they cease not to importune him for new invasions and exploits, thereby to get something to expend the new in wine, as they had already wasted what was secured so little before. Captain Morgan, being willing to follow fortune while she called him, hereupon stopped the mouths of many of the inhabitants of Jamaica, who were creditors to his men for large sums of money, with the hopes and promises he gave them of greater achievements than ever by a new expedition he was going about. This being done, he did not to give himself much concern to levy men for this or any other enterprise, his name being now so famous through all those islands that that alone would readily bring him in more men than he could readily employ. He undertook, therefore, to equip a new fleet of ships, for which purpose he assigned the south side of the Isle of Tortuga as a place for rendezvous. With this resolution, he wrote diverse letters to all the ancient and expert pirates there inhabiting, as also to the governor of the said isle, and to the planters and hunters of Hispaniola, giving them to understand his intentions, and desiring their appearance at the said place, in case they intended to go with him. All these people had no sooner understood his designs, than they flocked to the place assigned in huge numbers, with ships, canoes, and boats, being desirous to obey his commands, Thus all were present at the place assigned, and in readiness, against the 24th day of October, 1670. Special articles of agreement for the division of the treasure of Panama were drawn up by Morgan before his fleet sailed. Herein it was stipulated that he should have the hundredth part of all that was gotten to himself alone, that every captain should draw the shares of eight men for the expenses of his ship besides his own, that the surgeon besides his ordinary pay, should have two hundred pieces of eight for his chest of medicine, and every carpenter, above his common salary, should draw one hundred pieces of eight. Lastly, unto him that in any battle should signalize himself, either by entering first any castle, or taking down the Spanish colors and setting up the English, they constituted fifty pieces of eight for a reward. In the head of these articles it was stipulated that all these extraordinary salaries recompenses and rewards should be paid out of the first spoil or purchase they should take according as every one should then occur to be either rewarded or paid the expedition was a gorgeous success for on the twenty fourth of february of the year sixteen seventy one captain morgan departed from the city of panama or rather from the place where the said city of panama had stood of the spoils whereof he carried with him one hundred and seventy-five beasts of carriage laden with silver gold and other precious things besides six hundred prisoners more or less between men women children and slaves about the middle of the way to the castle of chagre captain morgan commanded his men to be placed in due order according to their custom and caused every one to be sworn that they had reserved nor concealed nothing privately to themselves even not so much as the value of sixpence this being done captain morgan having had some experience that those lewd fellows would not much stickle to swear falsely in points of interest he commanded every one to be searched very strictly both in their clothes and satchels and everywhere it might be presumed they had reserved anything yea to the intent this order might not be ill taken by his companions he permitted himself to be searched, even to the very soles of his shoes. To this office, by common consent, there was assigned one out of every company to be the searcher of all the rest. The French pirates that went on this expedition with Captain Morgan were not well satisfied with this new custom of searching. From Chagre, 
Captain Morgan sent presently after his arrival a great boat to Porto Bello, wherein were all the prisoners he had taken at the Isle of St. Catherine, demanding by them a considerable ransom for the castle of Chagre, where he then was, threatening otherwise to ruin and demolish it even to the ground. To this message, those of Porto Bello made answer that they would not give one farthing towards the ransom of the said castle, and that the English might do with it as they pleased. The answer being come, the dividend was made of all the spoil they had purchased in that voyage. Thus every company and every particular person therein included received their portion of what was got, or rather, what part thereof Captain Morgan was pleased to give them. For so it was that the rest of his companions, even of his own nation, complained of his proceedings in this particular, and feared not to tell him openly to his face that he had reserved the best jewels to himself, for they judged it impossible that no greater share should belong to them than two hundred pieces of eight per capita of so many valuable booties and robberies as they had obtained, which small sum they thought too little reward for so much labor and such huge and manifest dangers as they had often exposed their lives to. But Captain Morgan was deaf to all these and many other complaints of this kind, having designed in his mind to cheat them as much as he could. At last, Captain Morgan, finding himself obnoxious to many obloquies and detractions among his people, began to fear the consequences thereof, and hereupon, thinking it unsafe to remain any longer time at Chagre, he commanded the ordinance of the said castle to be carried on board his ship. Afterwards, he caused the greatest part of the walls to be demolished, and the edifices to be burnt, and as many other things spoiled and ruined as could conveniently be done in a short while. These orders being performed, he went secretly on board his own ship without giving any notice of his departure to his companions, nor calling any counsel, as he used to do. Thus he set sail and put out to sea, not bidding anybody adieu, being only followed by three or four vessels of the whole fleet. These were such, as the French pirates believed, as went shares with Captain Morgan, towards the best and greatest part of the spoil which had been concealed from them in the dividend, the Frenchman would very willingly have revenged this affront upon Captain Morgan and those that followed him, had they found themselves with sufficient means to encounter him at sea, but they were destitute of most things necessary thereto. Yea, they had much ado to find sufficient fiddles and provisions for their voyage to Panama, he having left them totally unprovided of all things. Esquimelling's commentary on this base conduct of the leader is surprisingly pious. Captain Morgan left us all in such a miserable condition as might serve for our lively representation what reward attends wickedness to latter end of life, whence we ought to have learned how to regulate and amend our actions for the future. Sir Francis Drake, sea king of the sixteenth century, the greatest admiral of the time, belongs not with the catalogue of pirates and buccaneers, yet he left a true tale of buried treasure among his exploits and it is highly probable that some of that rich plunder is hidden to-day in the steaming jungle of the road he took to panama there were only forty-eight englishmen in the band which he led on the famous raid to ambush the spanish treasure train bound to nombre de dios a century before morgan's raiders crossed the isthmus this first attempt resulted in failure, but after sundry adventures, Drake returned and hid his little force close by that famous treasure port of Nombre de Dios, where they waited to hear the bells of the packed mule caravan moving along the trail from Panama. It was at dawn when this distant, tinkling music was first heard, and the Cimarroons, or Indian guides, jubilant. Now they assured us we should have more gold and silver than all of us could bear away. 
Soon the Englishmen had glimpses of three royal treasure trains plodding along the leafy road, one of fifty mules, the other of seventy each, and every one of them laden with three hundred pounds weight of silver bullion, or thirty tons in all. The guard of forty-five Spanish soldiers loafed carelessly in front and rear, the guns slung on their backs. Drake and his bold seamen poured down from a hill, put the guard to flight, and captured the caravan with the loss of only two men. There was more plunder than they could carry back to their ships in a hasty retreat, and being wary, they were content with a few bars and quites of gold. The silver was buried in the expectation of returning for it later, partly in the burrows which the great land crabs have made in the earth, and partly under old trees which are fallen thereabouts, and partly in the sand and gravel of a river not very deep of water. Then began a forced march, every man burdened with all the treasure he could carry, and behind them the noise of both horse and foot coming, as it seemed, to the mules. Presently a wounded French captain became so exhausted that he had to drop out, refusing to delay the march and telling the company that he would remain behind in the woods with two of his men, in hope that some rest would recover his better strength. Ere long another Frenchman was missed, and investigation discovered that he had drunk much wine, and doubtless desired to sleep it off. Reaching Rio Francisco, Drake was dismayed to find his pinnacles gone and his party stranded. The vessels were recovered after delay and perilous adventure, whereupon Drake hastened to prepare another expedition to get intelligence in what case the country stood, and if might be, recover Monsieur Tetu, the French captain, and leastwise bring away the buried silver. The party was just about to start inland when on the beach appeared one of the two men who had stayed behind with the French captain. At the sight of Drake, he fell down on his knees, blessing God for the time that ever our captain was born, who now beyond all his hope was become his deliverer. He related that soon after they had been left behind in the forest, the Spaniards had captured Captain Tetu and the other man. He himself had escaped by throwing down his treasure and taking to his heels. Concerning the buried silver, he had lamentable tidings to impart. The Spanish had got wind of it, and he thought there had been near two thousand Spaniards and Negroes there to dig and search for it. However, the expedition pushed forward, and the news was confirmed. The earth every way a mile distant had been digged and turned up in every place of any likelihood to have anything hidden in it. It was learned that the general location of the silver had been divulged to the Spaniards by that rascally Frenchman who had got drunk and deserted during the march to the coast. He had been caught while asleep, and the soldiers from Nombre de Dios tortured him until he told all that he knew about the treasure. The Englishmen poked around and quickly found thirteen bars of silver and some few quoits of gold, with which they posted back to Rio Francisco, not daring to linger in the neighborhood of an overwhelming force of the enemy. It was their belief that the Spanish recovered by no means all of those precious tons of silver bullion, and Drake made sail very reluctantly. It may well be that a handsome hoard still awaits the search of some modern argonauts, or that the steam shovels of the workmen of the Panama Canal may sometimes swing aloft a burden of bars of silver and quoits of gold in their mighty buckets. Certain it is that Sir Francis Drake is to be numbered among that romantic company of sea rovers of other days who buried vast treasure upon the Spanish main. End of chapter 15